Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is RJ Anderson. RJ, one of the best writers in the business. I have worked with him a billion times, and each time I've uh, been increasingly impressed with this guy's ability and hustle. He's so good at his job, writes such thoughtful pieces. Uh, Google RJ Anderson, CBS Sports, and you'll find all kinds of great stuff. We cite some of his pieces in this conversation, including his piece on catcher concussions and on the 2003 Tigers and on uh, Jeff Mathis and all kinds of stuff. RJ's great. You can uh, check out his work uh, back in the day, Baseball Prospectus as well. So, so good. And there's some really good real talk in here about some of the life experiences he had, some of the challenges and how he got through them. Really, really worthwhile conversation. Uh, follow RJ on Twitter, read him at CBS, do all that stuff. Uh, not only a great writer, but a really, really fine human being. Uh, and I appreciate RJ coming on the show. I also appreciate the first of this week's sponsors, and that is Hims. Hey, you know what? Here's the problem. Two-thirds of men start losing their hair by age 35. And the thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's probably too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair that you've lost. So... You gotta figure out a solution to this problem. I got the solution for you. It's forhims.com, F-O-R-H-I-M-S.com. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat hair loss. Well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to keep your hair. No gimmicks, no weirdness. Doctors will review you, prescribe you products that are shipped directly to your door. And listeners can get a free trial, I'm sorry, a $5 trial month of hymns today, right now as supplies last. You can see the website for details. That would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. But instead, you can go to forhims.com slash Jonah. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Jonah. Forhims.com slash Jonah. $5 trial month. Check them out. Thank you to Hymns for sponsoring the podcast. Some programming notes for you. Let us discuss uh, CBS Sports, where you will find my work at CBS HQ doing lots and lots of video hits. Nationals, making trades. How about that? I'm talking about that uh, currently on HQ and anything else that goes down before the August 31st waiver trade deadline, as well as stretch run stuff. Throughout the postseason, I'll be talking on HQ, hot stove, lots of talking, lots of squawking, lots of waving my arms. Check that out. You can go to cbssports.com at the bottom of the page, click on HQ, or you will find clips throughout the website attached to my articles and other people's articles. Hey, you know what? It's time for another sponsor, friends. That is SeatGeek. Do I have to tell you that SeatGeek is the best? They have been sponsoring me. I believe the discovery of fire came first, followed by SeatGeek sponsoring the John Kerry podcast. They've done it in many iterations, and they are the best. It's the best place to get tickets to any game, concert, whatever you could possibly want. They are designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It's a color-coded map, so, oh, I want to go to a game. Well, maybe today the best place to sit is behind the third baseline, or in the upper deck, or behind home plate, or in the bleachers. They'll let you know very simply and very easily the best bang for your buck anywhere in the ballpark or to that concert that you want to go to. They're fantastic. I have used SeatGeek for freaking everything. Baseball, hockey, concerts, whatever. I actually have the SeatGeek app on my phone. I use it all the time. It's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. They are fantastic. And how about this? Listeners of the John Carey Podcast can get $20 off of their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah today. That's promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, for $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Let us discuss a little bit more in the realm of what's going on, and that is uh, my stuff at Sportsnet. This week I'm talking rebuilding. The Blue Jays are in a rebuilding phase, and uh, that piece has already been written, so you'll be able to check that out on Thursday. And then I'll be talking about it on Sportsnet here in Canada Friday uh, during Blue Jays Central. should air around 6.45 p.m. Eastern, so you can see my smiling face on Sportsnet. If you wish, we'll be talking rebuilding and how the Jays go about it. And try to emulate the Cubs and the Astros. And how about the Phillies? Maybe worse the first this year. So maybe the Jays can pull that off too. And we can pull off one more sponsor read because damn it, of course we can. Lightstream. It's an easy way to save hundreds of to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate if you've got credit card debt. Credit card debt stinks. But Lightstream offers a credit card consolidation loan from 5.89% APR with auto pay. 
That is damn low. Credit cards rip you off. The average credit card interest rate is over 18%. I've seen 20. It's ugly. It can crush you financially. You can get your funds as soon as the day you apply if you use Livestream. Livestream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. So say goodbye to high-interest credit cards this summer and start saving with Livestream. Listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Jonah. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Jonah because there is nothing better than spelling on a podcast. Here's your disclaimer. It's subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. And for more information on this podcast, just go listen to the damn podcast. It is with RJ Anderson. Enjoy. So, R.J. Anderson, we're going to jump right into this thing. I love the way that you've gone about teasing out these long-form pieces. It's really something I know, well, first of all, you and I have been chatting on the Internet about baseball, I think, since the Truman administration. And uh, the way that you've come along as a writer and, and really picked up on this particular angle is really cool. Uh, and one thing that I want to talk about right off is the piece that you did on Jeff Mathis, because it's really one of my favorites that anybody's written in recent times on baseball. And maybe that can be a little bit of a window into the way that you approach writing these kinds of stories. So what made you decide that this guy, one of the worst hitters of our generation, is worthy of a, what, five, 6,000-word profile? It was probably longer than it should have been, yeah. <laughs> so... I guess I've always been interested in things that are unexplainable. And one of those things that I found unexplainable was Jeff Masters' continued employment. Not just his continued employment, but this is a guy who keeps receiving multi-year deals and millions of dollars each season, despite being a very obviously flawed player to the point where, frankly, you could make the case that he probably doesn't belong on a big league roster, let alone on a guaranteed deal. And, you know, you look around the league, and you and I have both been around long enough to know that these kind of catchers seem available every winter on a non-roster deal. So I wanted to kind of figure out what separates Mathis from your alley solaces and your ever uh, random minor league free agents who have good defensive reputations. And, you know, fortunately, Mathis was willing to play ball, and I came in hoping that he would give him a lot of insight into his process and all, and I'm going to give him a compliment here. He was too smart for me. <laughs> you know, he – he treated me like an opposing batter, and he pitched right around me, you know, uh, didn't fall for any of my tricks. I asked him, you know, how would you have advised your pitchers to pitch to David Ortiz and some of these ever-retired hitters? Because my hope was that, you know, he could provide some insight into guys who he didn't have to worry about competitive advantage anymore, but he didn't fall for that. So he's a very smart guy. He's probably a future manager. And, yeah, it just it was up to me to try to make a convincing argument or at least provide what these people who believe in him believe is a convincing argument while also providing enough background information and finding enough sources to round it out. And honestly, you know, if people read the piece, there's kind of a big coincidence in there. And that coincidence is that the uh, coaches I talked to, I talked to two college coaches, they so, just so happened to be uh, the coaches who helped develop two guys who a prospect expert named as potentially the next Jeff Math. Hmm. And I swear to you, I had no idea Heading into, you know, the writing process after all the interviews were done, that, that was the case. It wasn't until I looked both of the players up for my own sake that I realized, oh, man, these guys were coached by the guys I talked to. So it's just one of those things. Uh, I just wanted to try to answer the unexplainable. And in the end, I came up with an unexplainable coincidence of my own. And that's kind of a fun little way to wrap up the piece, right? Totally. And I think that there's something instructive in here, too, that goes beyond catching. And that is empowering players to make their own mistakes and to figure out their own way. There's 
so much praise given to guys who are instinctive, whether it's calling games, whether it's stealing bases, hitting, pitching, anything like that. And it feels like, well, I mean, at least you hear this, that there's an overcoaching going on, that even high school coaches are looking to cover their hide and not look bad as they don't want to trust a kid to sink or swim. But, you know, in the big leagues, there's so much value placed on these guys who not only have great quick-twitch reflexes, but are really smart and intuitive. You know, they seem to get a leg up. We know who those guys are. Mathis is certainly one of them. Uh, where do we stand on that? Do, do, do the major league teams have any say-so at all, or is it just they're at the whims of high schools and colleges and, and uh, you know, traveling teams who don't have much incentive to let guys learn on the job? I think they're probably mostly at the whim of these programs, and, you know, that goes all the way down to AAE ball and whatnot, yeah. or the equivalent, I should say, of AAE ball, which is, I guess, Little League Baseball and travel teams and all that. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, we mentioned how a lot of these high school catchers, they don't get to call their own game, but there was actually a kid in this last draft named Will Banfield. He went to the Miami Marlins a little later on in the draft. He called his own games in high school, hmm. and that's not something you usually see. So that kind of gave him a leg up or seemingly gave him a leg up on maybe some of his peers who didn't have that experience. And, you know, in the piece, you see a couple of well-respected coaches, guys who are, you know, rising stars in the industry, and they differ on whether they would let their catchers call the game or not. One of them wants the catcher to call the game because it helps make his job as a pitching coach easier, and it gives the catcher that experience. And, you know, it just helps them get into the feel of the game a little more. They don't become a robot where they're just glancing over in between pitches, you know, and being fed for – or being forced fed the signs or, you know, the pitch call or whatever. Whereas the other coach, you know, he wants that experience. He wants that power. And you're right. You know, there's a very interesting debate to be had. And it doesn't just, you know, include this aspect. It also includes how these coaches use their pitchers and how they allow their hitters to hit or whether they just ask them to bunt all the time. And it comes down to, you know, developing these players for the next level and for the betterment as an individual and as a player versus trying to win and keep your job. And, you know, bottom line, these coaches don't want to get fired because an 18- or 19-year-old doesn't understand the situation at hand. And, you know, it's a tough it's a tough dilemma if you're a coach. You know, how do you balance that? Does it depend on where you are in your career? Does it depend on what program you're on? You know, does it depend on the kid himself? I mean, maybe there are some catchers that these coaches would feel more comfortable with than others. And I don't know. It's really a coach-by-coach basis. But I don't think major league teams can necessarily influence that because, you know, if you're a coach at, say, Texas A&M or whatever, what does it make a difference to you if a major league organization is mad at you? You're yeah. still going to be able to recruit because you're Texas A&M. No, it's true. And it also leads to a point about quantification. And you get into it in the story about Mathis and the idea of game calling. And, you know, years ago we didn't think that pitch framing would be quantifiable. We just thought it was one of those things, oh, guy moves a glove and that's about it. But, of course, now we have such ro- robust play-by-play data that we can get there. And although I, I don't want to quantify everything, I like mystery, but it feels like game calling isn't that far afield. And you tossed out some, you know, kind of anecdotal numbers about guys, uh, you know, OPS against and things like that and how hitters hit when, um, you know, when Mathis was catching. I know catcher ERA, which is a stat that, uh, you know, would seem like an obvious one, but heck, Keith Wilmer supposedly debunked that back in 2000 and said that this is a, a bogus stat. And so... I'm wondering how far away we are from getting there. Like, maybe Mathis isn't such a mystery. Maybe he won't reveal his specific techniques. But if his methodology isn't quantifiable, at least his value should be. What are, what are we missing here? Why are we not getting a read on this when it comes to war or whatever? I think it has to do a lot with how you divvy up the credit. And I will say that Harry Pavlidis and Jonathan Judge and the ever uh, stat individuals at Baseball Perspectives actually rolled out a game-calling metric a couple of springs back. And a guy like, I believe it was A.J. Ellis, who ranked first in the majors. And, of course, A.J. Ellis was catching Clayton Kershaw and some of her pretty good pitchers back then. So you kind of wondered, you know, is A.J. Ellis a game-calling maestro, or is he benefiting from pitchers not only making good pitches and executing, but also just having better stuff than your average pitcher? Because, you know, you put A.J. Ellis with that Miami Orleans staff, does he still look like a brilliant game caller? I mean, he's with the San Diego Padres now. Mm. I don't think anyone's calling him a, game, a brilliant game caller at the moment. I could be mistaken, but 
you know, it just comes down to that credit and how do you separate that? And realistically, we don't know, uh, just to use math as an example, we don't know what Mathis wants versus what Grinky wants. You know, is Mathis just going along with what Grinky wants? Is Grinky just going along with, with Mathis on what he wants? And I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, clearly they both have success in, in these regards elsewhere without each other. So it's just really hard to break down who deserves credit for what. And outside of the organization and really outside of the pitcher-catcher relationship, you don't really have a good feel for uh, how to divvy up that credit. So I'm not sure it's ever going to be quantifiable publicly, although I think the teams have a better insight to this. And when they say a guy's good at game calling, there's probably something to that. Mm. Now, it's funny. I had a conversation this is before A.J. Hinch became A.J. Hinch. At that time, he was a front office guy, former major league catcher. This was a few years ago at the winter meetings. And we just started shooting the breeze about catching because I was interested in it. And he was talking about the proverbial put your arm around the guy. It's the fourth inning. The bases are loaded. Your young pitcher has lost his command. You come out and you put your arm around the guy and he gets a double play. Or he gives up a grand slam. And I always wondered if there was something to that. Like, what happens immediately after a catcher goes out? That might be oversimplifying it because game calling involves anticipating what the pitcher wants and, you know, coming up big in the right spot and keeping the pitcher calm without necessarily having to go out there. But I have to think, you know, it, it, it's a notable event when a catcher says, whoa, 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 I got to go out there. It might be by road. It might be as soon as you load the bases, you have to go out there. But bottom line, we should be able, theoretically, over the course of a career, maybe even a season, to see enough arm around the guy data to be able to make some sort of determination because it seems to happen enough that there should be something in there. Or maybe it's the case that, by definition, somebody pitching under that much duress is going to get bonked no matter what happens, no matter how good a, a you know a whisper talker your catcher is. I don't know, but it feels like there might, feels like there should be something there. Yeah, that makes sense, and I kind of agree with you. I mean, one of the things I remember most from Chris Archer's debut was Carlos Pena coming to the mound when he was hmm. struggling a little bit, and you know, having basically the same conversation you're talking about. And then if I recall correctly, Archer settled in and he was fine from there. So I think having that field general, be it your catcher, be it your shortstop or your first baseman or whomever, I think that's important. I don't know if it's the big disparity between the best at this and the worst at this. I really don't know. But I would agree that there might be something interesting there. And, you know, if it's easy to track these mound visits, it's probably what we worthwhile to look at, especially if you have years and years of data. I mean, at this point, if it's included in the pitch FX data, you have about a decade of data to look at. So maybe someone would sign, maybe someone wouldn't. I don't really know. But yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, speaking of catchers, another piece I really enjoyed was your piece on concussions of catching. And obviously, I think that what people look at, you know, when it comes to catching injuries is what happened to Buster Posey a few years ago. And that created a situation where you can't Ray Fossey a guy, you can't bowl him over, whatever. Some people like it, some people don't like it, but what you pointed out is, in terms of frequency, you know, getting bowled over doesn't even compare to so many foul tips going off a mask over and over and over, and you make the argument for technology that Tyler Flowers, uh, as part of a new generation wearing a different kind of mask, and that might be it, but, you know, maybe it calls for something more drastic. Should catchers be setting up five feet further back than they already are, and it becomes a dead ball once the ball crosses the plate. I mean, maybe we're not even being uh, aggressive enough on this thing. It seems to me that if the ball crosses the plate, I, I don't know, is, should we continue to have drama with foul, uh, with wild pitches and pass balls and all this stuff? Maybe the catcher can set up a different way. If this is really an issue, if injuries are a problem, maybe just having a guy outside the line of fire can make all the difference. I know baseball is loath to make massive differences, but, gee, I mean, you know, what can happen to some of these guys is scary. And, you know, Friel, granted, Ryan Friel wasn't necessarily a catcher. He's the first case of CTE reported in baseball. But I don't want baseball to be football. I don't want, you know, Alex Avila to go the way of, gosh, Lyle Alzado or whatever. It's terrifying to me. Right. And, you know, the point you raised at the beginning was the traumatic injuries happening at home plate. You're right that we freak out and respond more to those than, say, Jose Molina taking two or three tips off his mask and, you know, a two-inning or three-inning span. That's because we can see the injury. You know, we can see the Buster Posey can't put weight on his leg and he can't walk off on his own. Whereas Molina, he may go to the ground for a few seconds, then you see him laughing with a trainer and he's right back in there. So I think there's a lot of validity to that. And, you know, one of the people I talked to for that piece was Dr. Benin Amuba. And he's obviously known as a concussion doctor, and he actually proposed that 
Maybe there's some technology that could be made where, you know, there's like a net or something and it helps prevent the ball from colliding with the catcher's mask at full velocity. And I don't know how realistic that is. I don't think he even knows how realistic that is, but it wouldn't surprise me if at some point we do try to tweak uh, the game a little bit, maybe use this technology to make these catches a little safer because, yeah, people don't really pay attention to these foul tips. They don't think it's serious because how often do you really see a catcher leave a game after a foul tip? When it happens, it's so rare that it's notable. And uh, another doctor I talked to for the piece was Robert Cantu. He does a lot of work with the NFL and, you know, helmet safety for Little League and Peewee uh, and all that stuff, among other, um, you know, minor or amateur leagues or whatever. And he noted that it's not necessarily the guys who or the players who experience a lot of concussions who show signs of CTE. It almost seems like concussions don't really correlate with CTE. What correlates best to CTE is the number of subconcussive blows and total blows to the brain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Jose Molina, Bruce Maxwell, you know, pick your catcher of choice. They take two or three or four shots in a game. They may not have a concussion, but they may have taken three or four subconcussive blows that add up over time when they're not sitting out because of the concussion and they're not getting rested. They're back in there the next day and get another two or three shots. And I will, I mentioned Bruce Maxwell. I saw him take a number of balls off the mask last year, and the dude just, like, fell to the ground, and you're sitting there, and you're saying, okay, he's got to come out after this one. I don't think he ever left the game. I think he was in there all along, and, wow. it, you know, it scares you. And another guy I'll mention, Robinson Serino, uh, he actually missed an entire season due to concussions. Earlier this year, when Matt Kemp ran him over, he saw Serino's head snap back, seemingly hit the ground. He stayed in the game. He didn't miss any time either. And it just makes you wonder, you know, how many of these guys are suffering concussions? How many of these guys are suffering, suffering, you know, multiple subconcussive blows in the game, not knowing it, not even thinking about it, and then later on in life perhaps being affected by it? Well, and I think the NFL corollary is a good one here because the guys you see with so many times with CT are like O-linemen. And O-linemen, first of all, the game is not – we, when we're watching football on TV, we don't see an O-lineman very much. It's just kind of a bunch of – muck going on back there, but they're taking headshots over and over, whereas if a you know, 180-pound wide receiver goes down the middle and gets clocked, it's like, whoa, that guy's laid out, but it's possible that the O-lineman's going to get it worse over the course of his career, and it goes back to the lack of attention being paid because these are not necessarily catastrophic events, and I think of Joe Maurer in particular, who you mentioned the story, Joe Maurer still plays baseball. He's still a pretty decent baseball player. So it's tough to sit there and say, well, gee, I mean, Joe Maurer, wow, look what happened to him with concussions. But maybe Joe Maurer's on his way to becoming, you know, not just a very good player, but like a lock, stock, and barrel Hall of Famer, Piazza level. He was a 330, you know, batting average, 410 OBP kind of guy behind the plate. That's preposterous. I mean, he was a hitting savant. He was Tony Gwynn, and now he's not. You know, he still has a good batting eye and all that, but his power, whatever he had, went away. And he just doesn't hit with as much authority. It's not that guy. Is it because he's in his mid-30s now? Or is it because his production really just flattened out after all of these injuries? You know, that kind of thing is a shame, but it doesn't get talked about because Joe Maurer didn't get smacked one time and then at age 29 ended his career. He stuck around and all that. And then guys like Jim Suhan declared that he's a wimp and that was the end of the story. And it sucks. It sucks. You know, it really stinks. It's Maurer's giving his health for this stuff, and who knows what the future holds for him. It's it's not a good thing, and and I think that uh, you know it, it behooves the sport, not only teams, not only employers of guys like Maurer. It behooves the sport to take a look at stuff like subconcussive blows, to take a look at the cumulative effects of things. Why do second basemen have shorter careers because they're getting hit around the back as much? Well, maybe there's something to be said for that too. Even if a guy doesn't break a leg. You know, so looking at how we can keep second baseman healthier. And, and part of that could be that, you know, takeout slides are being taken out of the game. So maybe the next generation second baseman lasts longer. I don't know. But as somebody who's interested in, I want the best players on the field. I'm not interested in fighting. I'm not interested in injuries. I just want the best guys to play. We should really be looking at the minutia. This stuff matters. I want Joe Maurer to sail into the Hall of Fame on the first ballot and to be one of the greatest who ever played. And he's getting denied that a little bit because of everything that happened to him. Right, and... Obviously, I don't know how much of Maurer's uh, downward slope or what have you was due to injury, but I will note one of the reasons he was able to move to first base is because the Twins' old first baseman, Justin Morneau, yeah. had his career derailed because of what? Well, because of concussions. And, you know, he, reti- he had to retire earlier than he should have based on his performance because of concussions. And, you know, those aren't the only guys. If you want to extend the past Twins, you have Corey Kosky, and you have 
you know, other examples, people tend to forget about these guys pretty quickly, but there are players in baseball who've had to retire because of concussions. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's Jason LaRue. That's the other one I'm thinking of. You know, he got kicked in the head during a fight yeah. by Don Cueto, and that was the end of his career. Now, obviously, no one's sitting around wondering what happened to Jason LaRue because he was near the end of his career anyway. He was a backup catcher. But it just goes to show, you know, this isn't just a football issue. It's not just a hockey issue, what have you. We have a societal issue with underestimating and maybe even not caring about these sudden cuts and blows or head trauma or anything like that because we can't see the injury. So it's not real to us. Whereas when you can see a, a broken bone or a guy towards ACL or something, then it's a little bit more real. And I don't really know how we're going to get past this other than continuing to talk about it and continuing to highlight examples of guys who, yeah, they might have just suffered something less than a concussion, but that doesn't make it less serious and it doesn't make it less scary for their well-being over the long run. I want to get to a little inside baseball, inside journalism stuff, specifically on your piece on Grant Desme, because you're you're always looking for interesting topics. But Desme, by all accounts, I mean, if you're talking about guys like Mathis, I mean, Desme is well below that. You know, it's at least Mathis carved out a successful big league career. Here we're talking about a guy who, you know, disappeared and then reappeared in semi-pro ball, basically. Obviously, the story is really interesting. He was a prospect. He goes to the seminary. Uh, you know, decides to take become a man of the cloth, and, and all that is fascinating. But uh, you know, why go to that? Why not go to I don't know? Edwin Jackson's on his thirteenth team, and he's good. I mean, there's a story to be written there too. What is it about a piece like this that attracts you and makes you say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to roll my sleeves and take a few weeks to really get to this guy who didn't do much in the world of baseball, but has had such an interesting life path." Well, I have to give credit that one to Craig Goldstein, who is an editor at Baseball Perspectives, because he was the one who alerted me to Desme, excuse me, being back in professional baseball, and he also told me I should write the piece, and to be honest, the idea of it scared me, and I told him, I'm not the guy to write that, you know, someone better deserves to write that, and then he used some choice language, and (laughs) I decided, okay, I am the guy to write that, apparently, so the reason it scared me is the same reason I took it, and that's because I figured if there's something there that feels off and that feels like, you know, this is going to be a challenge, then I should go for it. I want to stretch myself. I want to get more comfortable with whatever it is that's presenting itself that's causing me hesitation. But, you know, to answer the question about why write about Grant Desme rather than, you know, go after Edwin Jackson, who is by all accounts a wonderful guy. He's got a great story going on. I'm rooting for him every day and each time out. The answer is because, you know what, there are a lot of people out there who are going to write about Edwin Jackson. You know, there are beat writers out there who've been around Edwin Jackson this season. There are beat writers in the past who spent years around Edwin Jackson. Everyone knows about the Edwin Jackson story. He's right there in a big league clubhouse. You know, dozens of reporters walk by him every day. Grant Desme, I don't know how many other people knew he was back in professional baseball, but I'm going to guess it's fewer than the amount who walk by Edwin Jackson's locker on a given day. Sure. You know, I don't think there was many, and I guess there's something appealing to me about trying to find these smaller stories, so to speak, and I'm not trivializing Desme or anyone who I write about a story as being, you know, irrelevant or whatever. I'm just saying smaller than perhaps, you know, Edwin Jackson or some of these superstar players. There's just something appealing about taking those stories and putting them on a bigger stage and, you know, illuminating what makes their story interesting, because everyone has an interesting story if you really dig in and commit yourself to finding it, and... You know, you look at my background. I was a transaction writer for five years. I'll tell you, I hated writing about the blockbuster deals. I hated it. I always wanted Ben Lindbergh or Sam Miller or someone else to take those because I hated writing about them. Everyone writes about them. Everyone writes the same thing for the most part. You know, with the smaller deals, you know, the third catchers, the up and down infielders, the extra bullpen arms, those are the ones I dug in. I'd watch film. I'd dig into the stats page. I'd look around to see, you know, what I could find interesting about them. I would talk to contacts in the game. I would just try to find an interesting angle, and I think that really helped uh, develop my mind and maybe my skill set for pursuing these kind of pieces. Because, you know, I can tell you James Hoyt, some random reliever for the Astros who was originally in the Braves organization, I can tell you that he worked on ships. I can tell you that he pitched under Jose Canseco when Canseco was the manager in that one independent league for like few games or whatever. I can tell you those things off the top of my head, most people probably don't know who James Hoyt is, and they're better for it, in my opinion. But that's just how I'm wired to pursue these, you know, uh, 
lesser stories or what have you. And yeah, I would prefer to do that than go out to these superstar players or whatever, because I just think these stories deserve attention too. Most people just aren't really wired to go after them, or most people don't want to go after them for whatever reason, and that's fine. I mean, it creates a space for me that maybe otherwise would have been occupied by more talented people. So it's just how I am, and, you know, right or wrong, that's just how I am. Speaking of origin stories, you and I first started G-chatting, really, probably a decade ago, I guess, at this point, when the Tampa Bay Rays were on their way to making the World Series, and I was diving into a research project, which became a book on the Rays, and uh, we would chat, and I was just like, okay, this guy knows a lot about baseball, and then quickly come to find out how young you were at the time. And I was just thinking, <laughs> wow, was I stupid when I was this guy's age. I did not have my head screwed on straight in that way and all that. And you seem to have your career ambition kind of in your hip pocket as a teenager, and you were pursuing it. You were writing for uh, D-Ray's Bay at the time, and you went on to write for the Process Report, and you just found your way to baseball writing jobs. And, and you, you know, excelled at each one and now have a – a really nice gig at a high profile place and you're still, you know, relatively speaking, a really young guy. So how is it that someone comes to understand so early what it is when they want to, they want to be when they grow up and then just pursues it so diligently as opposed to screwing around like the rest of us, whatever we do when we're 16, 17, 18, making mistakes, making dumb decisions. You're like, all right, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do it. And now you're, it's being paid off in spades because you're a successful baseball writer and a very good one. Well, I was dumb. I mean, I'm still dumb, but I was dumber back then. And I sat and did a lot of things and wrote a lot of things that I regret. So, you know, let's not paint me as a, an angel here or a saint or whatever. And, you know, a lot of those things fill me with regret, honestly. But to answer the question, yeah, uh, when I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher who I uh, did a sports newsletter on the side, and he noticed that I was in the baseball and the sports, and he wrote in my yearbook that I could be the next Bob Costas. And that used to be a compliment. You know, I don't know how people feel about Bob Costas nowadays, but it was intended as a compliment. And I guess I just uh, kept going with it, and I wanted to become a sports writer. And, you know, two months after my 16th birthday, I reached out to Jake Larson, who was the D-Rays Bay editor-in-chief at the time, and I was like, hey, you know, would you be willing to let me contribute to the site? And I assumed that, you know, if you're willing to watch and write about the 2006 Tampa Bay Devil Rays, you just get a spot on the internet to do whatever you want. <laughs> because I didn't belong in the public sphere. I didn't even belong writing in the private sphere. And, uh, you know, after I got that position, it was unpaid. And, you know, you certainly weren't getting a ton of exposure back then writing about the Rays, maybe a couple hundred hits a day for the entire website. I just got obsessed with it. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, I mean, I did it like every day. I remember – I was up until 2 or 3 a.m. on Christmas of 2006 writing about how Al Reyes could contribute to the 2007 Rays bullpen. <laughs> he did. Poorly. <laughs> but in, in retrospect, that was a really bad use of time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I know I'm not good at anything else. And there's not a whole lot else out there for me to do. I didn't go to a four-year college. I went to a JUCO because I couldn't afford to go before your college. I don't have a four-year degree. I don't have any other skills, really. So I had to write to make a living. I couldn't even find a retail job when I was a teenager. I went for a few interviews, and they just never hired me. So it was really a matter of, you know, do this, or you're going to be in serious trouble. And, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of talented people who have given me some guidance along the way, yourself included, uh, Sam Miller included, Ben Lindbergh, and you know, I can list off a ton of people here. And, you know, and there's, you know, there's only been like one or two times in this entire run where I felt like quitting. And one time came right before you came to me with uh, the question of whether I want my name included on a CBS candidate list. You know, after yeah. I lost my mother, I, I couldn't write anymore. And I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like writing is easy for me, but it's always just been part of me. And when I sit down and I do it, it just kind of flows. You know, I don't have to struggle with it. I don't get frustrated with it for the most part. It just happened. And there was a stretch there after she passed away where it wasn't happening. And stuff that used to take me maybe an hour was taking me all day. And it was stuff about, like, writing about Wesley Wright. I knew Wesley Wright like the back of my hand, but I just couldn't write a paragraph about him. And hmm. it was really frustrating. And then my father passed away a few months later, and I was like, you know, I was at CBS at that point, but I wasn't enjoying the work. I wasn't. Yeah. getting any satisfaction or anything. And, uh, you know, praise the Lord, you know, eventually my girlfriend came into my life and she helped rekindle 
this because I remember there's a Kurt Vonnegut quote in uh, the, the book Bluebeard where he says that writers have to write for themselves and one other person. Well, I write about, I write for myself and I write for her now. And because of her, she's enabled me and empowered me to take these risks that I couldn't take before, that I didn't feel I could take before. And so, you know, how does someone get to this position? I guess they just have this almost monomaniacal belief that this is what they were put here to do and that they don't have these other options. They don't have an option. They have to make this work. And, you know, I've made it work, hopefully, uh, you know, without, I guess I would say hopefully without regret for the most part in how I've done it. You know, I didn't backstab people. No. I didn't step up staircases built from human backs. You know, I tried to do it the right way. And, you know, that's not for me to judge. Ultimately, that's forever to judge. But I like to think that I'm helpful, that I give my time to whoever asked for it and all. And, that's more important to me than, you know, Twitter followers or whatever. But, yeah, that's how I got here. I just had a belief that this was it. It was this or nothing, and I just stuck with it. And I, I've gotten a lot of luck along the way. I think that's the top factor here is luck. That's, it's really touching uh, to hear all of that. And a tribute to Emma, by the way, as well, uh, who's a great writer in her own right. That's really uh something that you found that, that you found that drive. Because people talk about loss, and they say, well, you know, like Isaiah Thomas, uh, Celtics player, he lost his sister and he went out and he played in game one of the, of that series, that huge series. And he was the star player for the Celtics and he played pretty well and he was inspired and so forth. But who's to say, you know, what happens with personal loss? Some of us are just like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a machine of efficiency at this thing because I'm going to get lost in my craft. But <laughs> if, if it would happen to me, if I had that kind of loss, I would imagine I'd go the other way. I just say, I don't want to do anything. I, I don't. I feel nothing. I'm numb. I can't write about, you know, Evan Gaddis's yeah. whatever. I, I just can. And so to hear that reaction is refreshing for its candor because this stuff sucks. Personal loss sucks. And finding your way through it, yeah, it's nice that you have writing as a sanctuary, but, you know, it's also a job. It's also hard. And, 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 uh, the fact that you were able to find other means, whether it's through Emma, whether it's through your own motivation, whether it's through maybe changing a little bit the style of what you write and really going for these aggressive pieces that are totally off the beaten path, it's cool, you know. And if you can find that convergence of personal happiness and satisfaction with professional happiness and satisfaction, man, I mean, that's that's as good as it gets. That should drive you to want to do this for whatever, however long you want to do it, maybe even for several more decades. Yeah, well, writers don't retire, as you are no. well aware. So I guess I have, I have to do over several more decades. But I guess I would say that, you know, in response to recovering from personal loss and all, it's still hard. Yeah. And I'm not a very religious person, but I'm extremely spiritual. And I think that helps get me through it. Uh, I have a belief that they're not gone, they're just not here, and that I will see them again. And they, as wacky as it sounds, I think they provided signs that that's correct. And the other thing is, you know, when I was considering giving up writing, I guess I viewed it as I've already lost two very, very big parts of me. If I lose writing, that's three things that basically define me in my first, you know, 25 years on this planet. Am I really, like, what is left of me if I give up writing in addition to the losses that have already been taken from me? And I don't know what the answer would have been and probably would have been nothing good. So part of it was just sticking with it because that's who I was or who, that's who I felt I was. And yeah, I, I guess my life has kind of been defined by not really feeling like I have a choice when it comes to these professional matters. Because if you're giving me the choice between, say, writing or, you know, working retail or whatever else, then that's not an insult to retail workers. I'm just saying, you know, if that's my choice, I'm a writer. I feel like I was put here to write, and that's what's been easy for me. Or not easy for me, but that's what's felt natural for me. And, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of trying to maintain uh, trueness to yourself and also, frankly, paying tribute to the opportunity they provided me because, you know, they believed in my writing more than I ever believed in it. And that's still true to this day, I imagine. And we weren't well off. I don't want to make this sound like I was some trust fund kid or whatever. We were, if we were middle class, I'd be surprised. I think we were probably lower than that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a testament to the kind of people they were is that when I was offered the CBS gig, I came in and, my father was dealing with cancer and he was near the end of his life. And we were, or he was, the only income he had, in addition to my writing income, was a disability. And he wasn't making very much on it. And I told him how much I would be making 
if I took this gig and I saw his eyes get big and he told me that's more than he ever made. That's more than my parents had ever made in a year. Hmm. And he told me, you don't take this for the money. You only take this as it feels right and if it's something you feel is correct for you. And I didn't think about that a lot. He passed away about a month, month and a half later. I think about that a lot because he did not want me to take a job that would have made his life infinitely easier, infinitely less stressful hmm. just for money. And, uh, you know, that's special to me. That's something that, you know, you can't fake that kind of integrity. And you can't fake that kind of uh, love for another human being. Because he could have easily told me, do it, you know, benefit from the financial gain and not felt bad about, you know, whether it was right for me or not. So, you know, my parents, they were my heroes. They saved my life in multiple ways. And they gave me this opportunity to become a professional writer. And I feel like if I didn't do this and if I don't do a good job of this, I'm wasting an opportunity that they gave me and the sacrifices they made were in vain. And I'm not willing to let that happen. That's really lovely, RJ. I really like that a lot. Um, I want to get back to one baseball point uh, before I cut you loose, and that is the discussion of rebuilding, tanking, what have you. Loved your piece on the 2003 Tigers uh, from earlier this year. I've always been fascinated by them. I've been fascinated by the fact that the way that they went about rebuilding is totally different, which you talk about in your story, than the Cubs and the Astros of recent vintage. They didn't have all these monster prospects. They had Granderson, Verlander. But mostly they just got a bunch of old guys. They got like Kenny Rogers and Pudge Rodriguez and Rondell White. And, <laughs> and then they went to the World and Maglio Ordonez, and they went to the World Series. It was pretty unlikely that that would happen, although very Dave Dombrowski in retrospect. But it's interesting, you know. Teams come up against this, and it's now, this is the new flavor in baseball. It's, look what happened to the Cubs. Look what happened to the Astros. Look what is happening to the Phillies. Anybody can do this. You can bottom out, and you can become good, and you can become dangerous very quickly. And I, actually, for um, my other gig at Sportsnet this week, I'm writing about the Blue Jays and kind of the mistakes that they made last year. Because you, any objective realization of the Blue Jays would say, yeah, trade Donaldson, trade Hap, trade everybody. Because this team is only going to get worse and you're just prolonging the inevitable and you can load up with more prospects to go with Vlad Jr. and those guys. They didn't do that. Donaldson's trade value completely collapsed. And they're going to end up not augmenting their farm system and basically having another loss season and it pushes their timetable back. But the Jays had led the league in attendance two years in a row. They had robust TV ratings and I work for that uh, TV network so I guess there's something there uh, for personal <laughs> interest. And, and, and I... Get all that. You know, that it's all part and parcel of everything, that if you're making revenue off the field, that matters just as much as if you get a really good second base prospect. All these things go together. So have we? I guess the way that I would ask it is, have we gotten too glib and too kind of automatic about, of course you strip it to the bone, dummy? Or is it that 0.0 local TV ratings like the Astros had and the Jays sacrificing attendance and all this stuff? And moreover, maybe to the point, 13 teams trying to rebuild at once, including two-thirds of the American League, makes it so that it isn't foolproof, it isn't an automatic success story, and maybe more teams should be like Oakland and say, you know what, we're not bad, let's push our chips into the middle of the table, and maybe we'll you know, come into this magical season, which people are going to remember for years to come, even if Oakland gets knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. What say you on this strip it to the bottom versus, you know what, trying to play respectable baseball and see what happens? Yeah, I think you made a lot of good points there. And I do think we're too glib about, you know, wanting to burn it all down. And I throw Arizona in the mix there because a few years ago when Mike Hazen took over there, everyone wanted them to strip it down. And what did they do? They didn't strip it down. Yeah. They might have even added a little bit. And all of a sudden they found themselves in the NLDS last year. And right now, I don't know what the result of the game is right now, but they're leading the National League West over a seeming superpower in the Dodgers. And, you know, Colorado Rockies, they're in a similar situation. No one really thought they were all that good. Maybe maybe a wild card gets entering the spring, but they're right there in second place. And we can list other teams. But, you know, they're, when you have 13 or so teams trying the same strategy, you should probably try a different strategy. And yeah. one thing I'm always – or one thing I'm more skeptical about now than I was when I was doing raise writing is the motivation behind some of these strategies. And what I mean by that is you hear a lot about rebuilding the right way or building the right way. Who deemed that the right way? Because when you think about it, stripping it down, building through the draft, building with minimum wage players or, you know, veterans minimum players and all that, who does that benefit most? <laughs> and the answer is ownership. Yep. They don't have to spend as much money on players, so they're pocketing a little more. And yeah, some of them reinvest 
and the organization, but let's be frank, there's, you know, there's a lot of shadow games being played with that stuff. So, no, I, I don't believe in rebuilding the right way. I believe there's a ton of ways to build a successful team in the majors. We see that every single year. We see it with players. You know, we see that there's endless amounts of ways to be a productive player. So the idea is that there's only one way to build a successful winner in baseball is nonsense. And beyond that, it's 13, 14 different teams that fall in the same formula. And if that formula depends on draft picks, who are notoriously volatile, and prospects were notoriously volatile, then what makes you think your team's going to get, you know, going to win the lottery, basically? Because a lot of teams don't win the lottery. And we've seen that time and again. I mean, the Cincinnati Reds have been bad for, well, since Dusty left, basically. And, you know, some of these other teams have been bad for years and years and years. There's no guarantee you're going to hit the lottery. I'm an Orlando Magic fan. Magic haven't hit the lottery since Way Howard. <laughs> a long time. You know, like, there's no guarantee. And beyond that, even if you do get one good player, even if you do get the topic over and over, I mean, people talk about the Astros, and yes, they hit on Correa. They also hit on Bregman. They also seemingly hit on Kyle Tucker. But remember, they had a failed couple of draft picks in there. I mean, Brady Aiken, that whole mess, and, you know, it's unfortunate what's happened to Aiken since. They also the Mark Appel pick. I mean, he's out of baseball by his own choice, but he's out of baseball completely. Like, these are not foolproof plans, and – it's just so crazy to me to see how baseball has shifted strategically in the last 10 years because I remember when Eva Longoria was being held down for service time purposes. Super 2 was a pretty esoteric concept. Not a lot of people knew about it. And nowadays, you have people rooting for teams to avoid it for their prospects rather than bringing up an Aloy Jimenez or a Vlad Guerrero Jr. And, you know, back then, again, you couldn't convince some fans that the race front office knew what they were doing. Now, if you question any front office's moves, their fans will come after you. And they're like, what do you mean my front office doesn't know what we're doing? And it's like, okay, your front office has no results. They made questionable trades, blah, blah, blah. And, yet they assume that every prospect they get has secret stud material for this reason or that reason. It's just, you know, I don't know if you can blame this on the 76ers. I don't know if you can blame it on the rise of process culture and professional sports or what. But the game has really changed from what's acceptable and what's not. Because the best way to – Earn your job security now isn't necessarily winning games. We've seen that fail with Dusty Baker and some others. It's coming in and promising this five-year rebuild where results don't matter because, you know, who cares about results? We're trying to build this thing the right way. We're going to save you money while we're doing it. So it's just an entirely different dynamic than it was when I first started, and I don't think it's necessarily for the better. I think it makes for a worse, uh, a worse league, a worse, worse product. And, frankly, I mean, looking at these super teams around the league, Say the Blue Jays, okay. Say Vlad Jr. is great. Say Bichette's great. Say, you know, some of these other prospects hit. Are they still going to be able to beat out the Yankees and the Red Sox unless they spend a lot of money? I'm not so sure. Right. So, you know, even a team that hits on these prospects and gets arguably two of the top, what, ten prospects in the game, they don't necessarily have a pass to the postseason if it works out. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a lot of nonsense. And I think that, you know, we've kind of bought into a bill of goods that we shouldn't have bought into. Yeah, and as, you know, like as media, okay, I sort of get it, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, whatever, Andrew Friedman wants to guess, grant us a one-hour interview and we get all starstruck or whatever, Dave Dombrowski sits down, and, well, Dombrowski's a bad example because he's always going for it, God bless him, but, you know, you just, <laughs> you, you get, you get these things and we just fall victim to it, but how does it trickle down to fans? Maybe we as media are, like, putting ideas in fans' minds. Fans should be pissed, man. Like, you know, I, yeah. and I'll, I'll go to Tampa Bay. I don't mind. You don't like talk, talk about Tampa Bay a fair bit. And, and uh, this is coming from me, not from you. But, like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of keeping payroll down. It's not it's not awesome. Oh, you tease more value than you expected out of Daniel Robertson. That's cool. The Rays are still boring as hell, and they're not going to win anything. And, like, great, Stu Sternberg is going to turn a profit. Fantastic. I've met Stu a couple times. Seems like a nice fellow. So what? Be mad. They, they were a good team, really good team. They made the playoffs four to six years. What, the Yankees and Red Sox are good, so now we got to keep our powder dry for the next century? Like, it's it's annoying. Punch these teams in the mouth. Go out and do something. And I don't even mean necessarily just splash money, because, of course, how many C.J. Wilson contracts are out there? How many B.J. Ryan contracts are out there? How many Albert Pujols right. contracts are out there? This stuff fails. I'm not saying throwing money at the problem is a solution, but gratifying, galvanizing, praising this 
oh, we won the Moneyball Championship. Well, that's not a championship. There's only one trophy in baseball, and, you know, marginal wins per marginal dollars, rest in peace, Doug Pappas, but that doesn't actually mean anything. And and I, I just, I, I wonder if we, the statistical-minded writers, have foisted our ideas on the public in a, in a deleterious way. Maybe we shouldn't have done this. Maybe we should have said, hey, get mad. The Blue Jays suck. They shouldn't suck. Your team should be doing something different. Yeah, uh, I accept blame. I know I'm responsible for part of it. Especially, you know, you talk about the Tampa Bay market. Well, I spent years and years there writing about how smart Andrew Friedman's moves were and justifying a lot of stuff that, frankly, I shouldn't have justified. Hmm. Be it acquiring guys who had questionable paths or downright uh, – horrible pass or, you know, justifying super two or justifying screwing guys out of their money. Yeah. I take blame for all that. I regret all that. That stuff haunts me. I hate that I did that because nothing good comes from that. Why would I want players to, you know, I saw someone, I think it was Keith law. I think he put it today. You know, these people who are okay with super two, how would they feel if their bosses did that to them? Because they're too good at what they do. Like, you know, I'm a youngest writer. If, CBS was like, oh, we're not going to let you write for half a year because we want to keep your costs in check six years down the road. I wouldn't be too happy with it. I would wonder what they're, you know, are we trying to win games here? Are you trying to do me right? Are you just trying to profit off your control over me? And, yeah, there's a lot of issues with baseball and the power in baseball. And we're not just talking about financially here. It extends always, you know, in terms of diversity and a number of other things. And we're seeing that, you know, play out every single day. but since we're talking about the financial aspect, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of bad stuff. And I was just talking with a front office friend a couple hours before uh, this interview when we talked about how it's wild that it doesn't even seem like any team wants to push against the Super 2 stuff. And the Braves used to be a team who they did not care about Super 2. They would bring their guys up on opening day if they were ready. And, you know, they dealt with it later on. I know people uh, kind of criticized them for that when they dealt Jason Hayward, but isn't there value to be had in actually being nice to your players and like forging yes. relationships beyond just player employer, because I have to believe there's value in saying, look, you were a top prospect. You're going to make a ton of money in your career. There's a chance we're not going to be able to enforce you. And I use that with, you know, a talent there because every team can seemingly afford whatever they want nowadays, but there's a chance we're not going to be able to afford you, but we're not going to mess with your money. We're going to bring you up. We're going to let you have a shot at, you know, breaking all kinds of records for your age and, you know, maybe eventually having a Hall of Fame career. And if you leave us in a few years, we understand, but we're not going to play this game. And I have to believe that would forge a better relationship with teams, or excuse me, with players and other agents. The only people who would screw all, you know, uh, would make mad would be the other teams because they're not doing that with their prospects and they'd probably hear about it. So I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being naive here, but I have to believe that a team out there can do that and actually reap benefits just from being decent People? Hmm. Uh, two points to make. Number one, hopefully it gets addressed in the next CBA. It does require the will of teams to do it, but I, I'm naive. I'd like to think that there's a way around it. All you got to do is change the rule. That's it. You could change it however you want to change it, but that would solve the problem. Number two, uh, don't self-flagellate too hard when it comes to the Tampa Bay Rays and drinking the Kool-Aid. At least you didn't write a damn book about the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so there is that, uh, RJ. Uh, one more question I want to ask you. And that is the state of baseball as a whole. And we, we talked about minority representation, and there's a lot to be said there. There are 10,000 different ways that we can go. But, uh, you know, what I find interesting is this whole debate about, well, the game's boring now. And I think it was Sam Miller, because basically if there's a good baseball story out there, there's a pretty good chance that either you wrote it, Sam Miller wrote it, Jeff Sullivan wrote it. Brad, I really like uh, Doolittle <laughs> at ESPN. He's really good. But there's like a handful of people that I could name that probably wrote it. So I'm pretty sure this was Sam. Anyway, and he said, you know what? The shifts are great. That What's happening right now in baseball, whatever Goose Gossage says or stuff like that, first of all, shifts are not actually diminishing run scoring overall because walk rates are up. So if you look at it, it's having no effect. It, just, it does specifically change ground balls hit through the hole between first and second. But other than that, it's about the same. And number two, it invites a whole bunch of strategies that teams haven't necessarily taken advantage of. You can bunt. I had Carlos Peña on the podcast. He was loving when I told him how great he was at bunting against the shift. You could do that. <laughs> of course he was. If Los is the best. There's all kinds of things that you can do that's just waiting to be done. And if the game changes in any way, it's on you to be more creative. Do you find the game more boring than it used to be? And if you do, what would you change about it? 
Well, I'll just say, for one thing, Lopes is the best. Uh, yes. Love talking with him. Yes. Just, you know, couldn't you see him in a manager's position just like tomorrow? Commissioner! He should be the commissioner. The I would like, I, would, I just want, you there just want to hug the guy. He's just so lovable. Yeah. Anyway. He is. And then number two, I mean, Guskov just thinks that the sun isn't as hot as it used to be. I mean, yeah. that guy doesn't like anything <laughs> compared to how it used to be. So, you know, he's a good quote to extent, but come on. Um, as for the game being boring, I mean, I think there are pros and cons to today's game versus, you know, 10, 15 years ago or whatever I grew up with. Like, for instance, I'm not a big fan of these replays where the guy pops off the back for a half a second or whatever. Like, that's a negative to me. And there are some stylistic negatives that I don't really like. The shift stuff, like you said, you know, if the batting average and balls in play hasn't really changed, what does that tell us about shifts? Does that tell us that they're actually messing with offense? Are they messing with the style of offense? Are they messing with the style of pitching? I'm not quite sure there. I will say that uh, one of my – one of the people I follow on Twitter, I believe it's chicken underscore puppet, so the events per minute or whatever, or minutes per event, you know, batted ball, hit by pitch, blah, 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 has really declined in the last – or I should say there's a bigger gap between events nowadays versus when there was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And it was usually pretty stable. And then – I believe it was 2012 or something, it spiked up. And like, there became a minute more in between each event. And that's a huge, huge difference. He had the graph on his timeline. And, you know, he's a pretty uh, smart guy. So I would encourage checking that out. But I don't know what caused that. I don't know if it's commercial breaks. I don't know if it's pitchers taking longer or what have you. But I do think there's probably something to be said about perhaps installing a pitch clock. And I know a lot of people are against it. But when you talk to people who do – uh, minor league coverage, and they've had the pitch clock in place for years now, and they say you don't even notice it. You know, you don't even notice it after the novelty wears off, and I believe that would be true at the big league level, too. And, look, I understand that baseball is the game about a clock and all that, but I don't know. I Like, I've been up, you know, part of the job is staying up sometimes until all the games end. I swear to you, no team has ever won or lost on more nonsense plays around 1.32 a.m. than this Dodgers club. And sometimes, yeah, I would like to get to bed before, you know, 2 a.m., 2.30, just because the Dodgers relievers, I'm not naming any names, but, you know, Pedro Baez, like to take, you know, a minute and a half in between ball two and ball three. So I don't necessarily find the game boring. There's still a lot of intrigue there for me. But I do think there are steps that could be taken to improve the game and maybe make it more accessible to fans who aren't hardcore. Because you and me, we've been watching – our entire lives. We're yeah. probably not going to stop watching between now and the grave. And even when, you know, once we get to the pearly gates, they probably have MLB TV up there, you know? So <laughs> we're probably going to still watch. So, you know, it's not necessarily boring for me, but that's not who baseball should be concerned about. Baseball should be concerned about appealing to people who maybe do think the game is boring. And I'm not saying shift everything. I'm not saying change everything. I'm not saying even make huge changes, but some tweaks here and there are probably for the good of the game. And I don't know. I mean, you know, the offense, that's a concerning thing to me because you look at the pitchers and they're just getting better and better. So good, yeah. You know, there are guys, there are starters now who throw harder than any reliever when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be, if you could hit, you know, if you could sit mid to upper 90s, you were special. And now, I mean, good Lord, you have starters who go out there and basically sit around 100. Yeah. You have guys hitting 104. You have guys hitting maybe higher than that. And that kind of a loss is that has to have some effect. And, you know, with all the analytics they have and all the, data they have, I have to believe that, yeah, pitchers probably have the upper hand because they always have the upper hand. I mean, think about it. Uh, batting average and ball in pl- balls in play are pretty consistently around, what, 300? Yeah. So that means 70% of the time you put the ball in play, you're going to win. And that's actually, to go back to the Mathis piece for a second, Jerry Weinstein, who was a catching coach for the Rockies, said, yeah. he tells his catchers and his pitchers, you have a 70% chance of success if you can get this guy to put the ball in play and not have it be a home run, obviously. So, you're the house, you're going to win. It's just a matter of letting the guy put the ball on play. And I think, you know, we have to remember that. And I think we have to try to find a way, yes, to maybe speed it up a little bit or at least add more events so we're not just sitting here and, you know, watching pitch after pitch and then having more time between these pitches than is deemed absolutely necessary. RJ, real pleasure to talk baseball with you and to talk life with you. I enjoyed this very much. We can read your work at CBS Sports, home of the greatest sports content in the universe. <laughs> also on uh, CBS HQ, which is always a lot of fun. Got to love the on-camera action. 
And I really appreciate getting to chat with you in a forum that was not GChat. So thank you for this. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. And yes, I just want to plug, you know, Dane Perry, Matt Snyder, Mike Excuse's work as well. And under the leadership of Igor Mello and RJ White, you know, those are all uh, great human beings. I'm very lucky to be where I am. So, you know, props to them. They make me look much better than I am. Ditto. I agree 100%. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.